This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Many times on Dreamland, we have explored the idea of that the universe may be a simulation. Riz Verk's been on the show, I think, three times. Now we have two new guests to explore this with, a remarkable man and woman, Bernie Heisch and Marsha Sims. Am I pronouncing your name right, Bernie? Heisch is fine, yes. Okay, Perfectly. Good. Great. <laughs> yeah. All right. And they are a team that I fell in love with immediately upon reading why they are a team. Uh, Bernie has got uh, Parkinson's and Marsha has become his, what I would call muse, writing partner. Uh, and they have evolved a lot of ideas together that I don't think would even exist if this deep partnership hadn't come about. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about them. Bernie is an astrophysicist a very prominent astrophysicist, is the author of 130 scientific publications. He was the editor of Astrophysical Journal for 10 years. He earned his PhD from the University of Wisconsin. Uh, he did postdoctoral work at the Joint Institute for Laboratory Astrophysics at the University of Colorado at Boulder and the University of Utrecht in the Netherlands. Uh, he's has been a staff scientist at Lockheed Martin Solar and Astrophysics Laboratory. He's been deputy director of the Center for Extreme Ultraviolet Astrophysics in Berkeley. Uh, he's been a visiting science scientist at the Max Planck Institute for extra uh, for uh, extraterrestrial physics in mm -hmm. Germany. He was also editor in chief for a long time of the Journal of Scientific Exploration. All right. Now, he is, as well, the author of The God Theory and the Purpose-Guided Universe. Marcia Sims has a very eclectic background indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Marcia uh, is, has been an administrator and deputy Sec department secretary at Lockheed Palo Alto Research Laboratory. She's been the executive editor of the Journal of Scientific Exploration, uh, at uh, California Institute for Physics and Astrophysics. Uh, she has been an administrator, graphic artist, and photographer at Many One Networks and Digital Universe Foundation. And they are a husband and wife team, and they work on many projects together, including, interestingly enough, songwriting. They yeah. perform together in a few operettas, and uh, they are have a science company called the Jovian Company. But there's also something else here that we're going to be talking about in a very profound way over the course of the show. It's called love. We're looking at it right now. Those two people. That's love. <laughs> yeah. <Thank you. laughs> and that's why this is happening. That's what <laughs> makes this vision of the simulated universe so very different and much deeper than the visions that we have explored before. Now, what, and we'll, you'll find out, folks, what that means. It's not um, romantic love. There's something else going on here that's real powerful that Bernie and Marsha talk about in their book, and that I was thrilled 
because it's been part of my instinctive understanding of what's going on for a long time. Okay, so let's start, and we're going to start at the back of the book. <laughs> at the back of the book, and you'll see why later, folks. And uh, Bernie and Marsha have a wonderful description of what an atom really is. And I think that that's a great place to start because it's going to anchor us, if anchor could even be a word used here, in a concept of reality that is very, very different from what we experience every moment of our lives. So I'm not going to ask which one of you wants to talk. It's up to you. But what is an atom and what is really in it? And, and, and an electron, I thought the description of an electron and what and how indeterminacy works was just exquisite. It is, I could start out, Bernie, you can add the scientific terminology that I might've missed. Crack at it. Yeah, I'll take a crack at it. So there are uh, two views of what an atom really is. Um, the way I was taught when I was in grade school, and this is the way people always thought about it, previously to current times is that the atom was considered to be a miniature solar system with electrons orbiting a nucleus. But now it's viewed much more abstractly. It's now viewed as a nucleus being surrounded by electrons that form a cloud of probability. Probability. That means we're not really sure where an electron really would be at any point in time. But we know this general area where it would be orbiting the nucleus, but we're not sure where. So this really changes our view of reality. Because uh, just imagine if you sit in your favorite armchair, you're not really being supported by atoms that are little miniature solar systems. You're being supported by clouds of probability. Probabilities are numbers that govern physics in our world. In our book, we developed the idea that a matter-based universe can be replaced by a number-based universe. And this leads us to the likelihood that reality is a simulation. Um, we can look back to some other famous scientists, such as Heisenberg, who saw atoms and elementary particles themselves as potentialities rather than things or facts. Yes, if you look back at the uh, comments on the uh, the atomic structure of the particles back in the oh, 100 years ago, you know, um, it became evident that uh, there was uh, something very, very non-classical going on in, in an electron and other particles too. And that was that there is a, a cloud of charge, I mean, a cloud of probability that determines in the case of an atom where the, uh, the orbital electron is to be found. Well, gee, that's, that's a whole lot different than, than looking at this as a solid particle. So uh, it opens up the question of whether other particles, things that think are particles, similarly have a indeterminate structure like this. And if they do, well, maybe you could apply that to the, the universe at large and large and small and see how the things work out in terms of the, the laws that govern um, uh, an atom or an electron that uh, that are not solid particles that 
uh, Marshall learning grade school. Yeah, it's possible <laughs> to imagine that maybe we as human beings are also being supported by, are surrounded by clouds of probability, depending on our free will choice. And that gets me to another question, and it's a question about free will and about the creator of this thing we call the universe. Uh, there's been recently some, uh, uh, let's see, I, I'm, I'm skipping his name, unfortunately, but he was a, he's a prominent uh, uh, neurologist who has concluded that we have no free will, that it doesn't exist. And um, I mean, that, that happens about every five or six years. Someone <laughs> in some discipline comes along and announces this and it gets in all the scientific literature and then it goes away. Um, so, but let's, let me ask you this. Uh, there was a beginning. There must've been, I mean, we, you mentioned the, working back to the big bang in the, in, in the book. And that is to say, when we look backwards in time, we get to a single point, which is immeasurably dense. And who in the world was there before that? In other words, who wanted this? Oh, well, we can read in the new Testament um, in John chapter one, verse one, that in the beginning was the logos or the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. It's reasonable to consider the possibility that um, the logos is an expression of thought, also. And by the way, that's actually one of the other Greek meanings of the word logos, expression of thought. And that's one of our premises: is that um, we, uh, God, created the universe as an expression of His conscious thought. And we're sparks of God, and we're co-creating our universe along with God as co-creators. And we, we are sparks of God's consciousness. You want to add? Well, yeah, this is a, a relatively new version. Or not, not version. This is a really new concept on what the uh, underlying reality might be of the whole universe. You know, if uh, uh, this I mentioned the, the case of the electron, it's really uh, it's, it's nothing solid at all. Well, that seems to apply actually to all sorts of particles in the universe because they all seem to have um, various combinations of, of quarks um, and other things in their, nu in their nucleus that uh, are definitely not the, the solid matter kind of things that uh, we've been, we, we had to deal with in physics, you know, back a long ways. So this led me to think about how the entire universe's uh, constituents and its, uh, its laws can be traced back not to uh, solid matter, not physical stuff, but rather to be traced back to there being thought, uh, thought in the universe, thought being the consciousness of God. And uh, so this is something that I think is a very interesting and new way to, to follow when to come up with ideas about what the underlying basis is. I don't think it's just particle physics. I've read particle physics a lot, and I, I'm, I'm drifting away from that now because I don't think that that's really the, the, base, the base of everything. It's, it's, uh, there's more and more stuff that uh, we haven't dealt with yet in terms of consciousness and its uh, effect on creating matter. So I'm not sure. Yeah. Didn't you want to know what we thought existed? 
before. Yeah, uh, and I, yeah. <laughs> let me expand on that question a yeah. little bit. Okay. There's a book you don't mention in your bibliography, but you may know uh, Max Tegmark's Our Mathematical Universe. Right uh, on my desk. I didn't hear you. I'm sorry. I say, I say, I've got that on my bookcase. Uh, yeah. Well, he his premise is that math, the the formula that formulas that make up the formation of reality must have existed before the universe did because they would have been already there or the universe wouldn't have formed itself the way it did. Uh, and interestingly enough, this brings to my mind uh, the wonderful uh, correspondence between uh, 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 Carl Jung and um, Oh, darn it. I'm so sorry. I'm the older you get, the more you drop names. And I don't yeah. mean I drop the names of actors. You, you blank them just as you're going to say them. Who uh, Wolf, Wolfgang, Wolfgang Pauli. Uh, Wolfgang Pauli? Yeah, Wolfgang Pauli. Oh, yay, we got and, it. Okay. <laughs> and, and Wolfgang Pauli's uh, immense curiosity about the fine structure constant, the 1 137th. Mm -hmm. uh, constant that make that is responsible for the whole way things are structured and uh there's no reason for it it's not like the other constants it comes out of nowhere and that really bothered him in fact he made such a point of it he when he was dying he moved into a certain room in the hospital it was room 137. I've heard as that, if, yes. Yes, as if to leave behind this question. Synchronicity. Is that what 137 means? Well, this happens to be a, a, a strength of one of the effects in physics that uh, comes out to be this 137 number. You find it several places. Oh. No one knows what it means. In fact, uh, Arthur Eddington wrote a whole book on this. He called it, it's called Fundamental Theory and was published in, I think, 1946. And uh, this is considered far out for him to be doing this, but he, he, put a, he uh, published a book that is quite uh, quite interesting. I should have that. It just it's just that it, it because it has no there's no it it's free floating. There's no physics behind it. It's like a, a flicker of God's mind. Hmm. It just decided. This presence decided, well, that's a good number. Use that. Yeah. And, and here we are. That's interesting. I wanted to mention something about the um, Einsof, E-I-N yeah, and then S-O-F. It's a term that's used in Kabbalah, and it represents God prior to self-manifestation as a divine and endless light. And the term means, Einsof means nothing in the profound sense of no thing. It exists at the lowest possible energy. And Bernie is very, very interested in researching the zero point energy and how to possibly extract energy from it. Well, this has been an interesting correspondence to the beginning of the universe because since uh, God existed at the lowest possible energy, could the zero-point energy be an expression of God? We're talking to Marcia Sims and Bernie Heche. Their new book, 
the miracle of our universe, a new view of consciousness, God, science, and reality. And we are playing a little bit with this idea, not just of reality, but of God as someone, someone not, not a, you know, they say in the book that they chose he to the, as the pronoun, but, and I reflected when I thought of that, we don't have a pronoun for God. We don't okay. have a pronoun because we don't have, a, we do not have knowledge the knowledge necessary to evolve a pronoun for God. But let's <laughs> let's uh, let's go on with what you were saying about that about the Kabbalah. That was fascinating. Well, um, I used to be very content, I suppose, with the uh, Big Bang as the origin of the universe. It seemed like a great discovery, and uh, it was really something that seemed like it would, it would um, cement the right place for us to see cosmology uh, with the uh, Big Bang as the, you know, the basis of it. But uh, if you think about it, it's, it's sort of fundamentally impossible for the Big Bang to be true because what comes before nothing? You have to have something come before nothing in order to make the Big Bang happen. You say, well, the Big Bang happened at uh, you know, 10 to the minus 38 uh, seconds. But um, that's not, that's not going to take care of the problem that before, that time I just quoted here off the top of my head, before that, um, there was nothing, nothing really, nothing in the Einstein sense. And so how in the world can anything be created when the, the, the creation point has to exist somewhere before time itself does? Big problem. So God was part of the Einstein and he came out of the Einstein. He was divine light, endless light. And somehow, after things evolved, God became a consciousness. And we can't look further back than the Einsoff because that's not possible with our comprehension to do that. But we can look back to the lowest point at the Einsoff, and then God evolving out of the Einsoff into divine consciousness or cosmic consciousness. And then God, we believe, who is part of the Logos, uh, created the zero-point energy, the lowest point of energy, and he used, he, she, it, used the zero-point energy to create the Big Bang. And then the Big Bang is where our physical universe came from, but it all came out of cosmic consciousness. So where we are right now in our seemingly uh, world of solid matter, is it really as solid as it seems to us? It's because we're part of the simulation right now. It seems very real. Does that make sense? Oh, I don't see it. Yeah. You want to add to that? Did I get it? Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> There's many other layers in there about you know how the different universe, the universe is created and the different stars and the solar systems and the planets, etc. Let me say a couple of things about the later topic, which is zero-point energy. Um, I'm probably one of the few people to have gotten a grant from NASA, this was a few, a few years ago, to, to study zero-point energy in the context of some fundamental astrophysical problems. So uh, it's hard to come by uh, research in that area, uh, funding for that. 
but it, it, uh, it uh, is a, a way that I discovered was um, useful to have in mind to realize that there may be nothing but that at the basis of basis of the universe itself. Because what what is there that so neatly um, provides uh, an effect such as the uh, the amount of energy content in the classical zero point field, which you get from quantum vacuum fluctuations? It's easy to do. Um, Ready? I think we should explain what the zero point energy really is before you go on. I want to be sure everyone understands this term because it's kind of a difficult term. Zero point energy. What the have? What in the world is that? Okay, it's broadly recognized as a vast field of electromagnetic energy. It's also known as the quantum vacuum field or the QVF. And this field represents the underlying energy that is everywhere in the universe, even where there is nothing but vacuum. And it's composed of a combination of every frequency or wavelength that exists. Some are long and others are short. It's perfectly random. It's an infinite source of energy, and it was already known to Einstein and Max Planck. Now, Bernie and this company he formed along with Garrett Modell, uh, and I'm a part of it. I'm the CEO and Hugo Trucks is the, is the president. Uh, we believe that the ZPF can be tapped in a way that would provide humanity with an endless supply of totally clean energy without violating the second law of thermodynamics. Our process has nothing to do with heat. It is electromagnetic. Should I go on and explain what this experiment is? Uh, yeah, um, please do, because I'm very interested on a personal level. All right. Okay, all right. So um, we have this company, and I should uh, say its name. It's called Jovion, J-O-V-I-O-N. And if you go to the website, J-O-V-I-O-N.com, you can read about everything that we're trying to do. And if you are really excited about what we're trying to do, we need some support. So. We'd love to get you involved with your enthusiasm. But anyway, I want to go back to the fact that the ZPF, an infinite source of energy, was already known to Einstein and Max Planck. And uh, that there is a Casimir force that happens when two parallel metal plates are pushed together by an overpressure of the ZPE from the outside of the plates. A Casimir cavity can be created that takes advantage of this force at the nano level is what we would do. So it's very, very tiny. The ZPF can be manipulated through the use of nano-sized Casimir cavities by squeezing out photon energy. Electron orbitals of an atom spiral down inside the cavity and photons are emitted. Our process then sends the photons through a photovoltaic cell and electricity will then be generated. So the ZPF acts as a kind of catalyst. And what we would use is we'd use a Casimir generator, which we've already patented. So uh, it will be a game changing, revolutionary, clean energy technology that would combat climate change. It would. Uh, require no fossil or nuclear fuel and emit no waste carbon or harmful byproducts. So it's pretty exciting potential there. Yeah, the exactly. Potentiality that we need, 
we need assistance so that we can build a prototype to really prove that it works. You want to say something? Yeah, I guess I do. That, that, uh, this is one application that, uh, a great one, if, if we can make this work. But um, the, uh, let me hang on. You're talking about the second law of thermodynamics. Yeah, the second law of thermodynamics is usually interpreted as being, being the sort of thing we're trying to do to be impossible. And it is in general impossible. You cannot you, you cannot you, violate it. You, the lowest energy state of the, uh, the zero point field is everywhere, everything, and uh, that has been thought. thought has been been debunked as a possible source of free energy, but it's not if you use a Casimir cavity. A Casimir cavity is such that if you uh, sh shove particles through it, the particles will drop down from the zero, supposed zero energy state to a lower state because their support in, in their orbital existence is, a, is pulled out from under them. So, so it can go lower than zero. You can go below, zero, below the quantum vacuum energy state by simply using Casimir cavities. Casimir cavities are the only thing that I know of that has that possibility. So uh, this is, had been suggested to me some time ago and um, also, the quote. I think you got it, Bernie. What, he, what he's basically trying to say is that the main criticism we had is you can't get energy out of something that's zero, but you can indeed get below the energy of the zero point energy with the Casimir cavity. With the Casimir cavity, because the longer waves of the zero point energy are not able to penetrate the cavity. They're held on the outside, so that's the idea. Well, I apologize a little bit, a little bit uh, difficult to understand from time to time. I, I do have this. Uh, um, Is Parkinson's Parkinson's, we, which makes it really kind of difficult to carry on. Right, carrying on is fine, um, but it's a little bit sloppy now and then. Yeah. Oh, that's all right. You're doing fine. Um, Thank but it's you. A, it's it's a it's a really interesting point. I have a friend. Uh, Hal Pudoff, who's worked on this same uh, idea of zero-point energy for many years. It's a hard nut to crack, though, but I've never heard uh, the, the idea of the use of Casimir cavity. Can you explain to us exactly what such what this is, a, a, a Casimir cavity? Because my I always say to my audience, and people get so... They, they, they don't understand things, and they turn into magical thinking, like quantum everything you know you got quantum ring to cure your warts or whatever <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, <laughs> but what exactly is a casimir cavity well um first i want to say that we're also very good friends with hell put off and i just spoke with him yesterday oh, and good. yeah he's familiar with our uh project and he's 100% behind it, and he's going to endorse our idea. And he thinks that, uh, you know, it really deserves to develop, uh, to be funded enough to develop the prototype. Previously, we haven't had a high enough quality Casimir cavity. We've only used surrogates. But a Casimir cavity, uh, I mean, we're still developing what it is we need, but it's basically two parallel plates that are pushed together by an overpressure of the ZPE from the outside of the plates, if that makes sense. But it has to be very tiny down at the nano size. 
but it's pressed together because uh, as it gets smaller, as the opening gets smaller, the longer waves of the ZPF or the quantum vacuum field cannot get inside. So it causes this pressure inside. We see this in nature. Um, there is a Dutch physicist, it was Heinrich Casimir, is that his name? Heinrich Casimir. Yeah, Heinrich Casimir. And he was the first scientist that uh, discovered this and, and understood what it was. And this happens uh, what with minerals naturally in nature that you have, have a little mini Casimir cabinet. You can have it. Yeah. What you need is, a, is either a, a plate that's a conductor, perfect conductor, or you have. Um, uh, you have a second here. Oh, yeah, you have dielectrics. Dielectrics of the, yeah, dielectrics of the right property. Okay, so we have, a, we have a, an interesting possibility here, and we're going to keep in touch with you, and hopefully a lot of un unusual people listen to this particular show, and you never know who may come into your lives. Uh, That's right. So hopefully someone useful will. Um, we have a number of billionaires who listen to the show. So, guys wow. and gals, hello. Guys, we um, only need two million to build our correct Casimir cavity. And we actually, two days ago, had a conversation with a company called Atomica and Galita, and they think they could build Casimir cavity for us. So wow. all we need to do is get funded. I mean, one of the biggest problems was trying to locate a company that might be able to manufacture such a cavity. And now we found one. So we just need the funding. Yeah. Yeah. Hear that? Hear that out there? <laughs> okay. Well, let's, we're going to come up on a break now. And folks, when we're, you get back, we're going we're gonna to shift gears. Remember, I started this show by saying that it was essentially about love. And it is not about the kind of love that we think of when we think of love. Hmm. There's something else out there. And oddly enough, it probably relates very profoundly to the zero point field. We're talking to Marcia Sims and Bernie Heche about their book, The Miracle of Our Universe, A New View of Consciousness, God, Science, and Reality. And we have been chatting, if you can believe it, about fundamental processes that could literally change the world more profoundly than almost anything mankind has ever done. Because if the zero point field can be unlocked and energy drawn from it, basically, that's a new game, a new way of being. Now, I say way of being, I want to start in, in a kind of a funny place. Marsha, you've had a near-death experience. Yes. <laughs> Want me to tell you about it? Yeah, I want to start with that. And and oh. we're gonna we're gonna circle around and we're gonna do a lot of circling here, but let's let's start there. Oh yeah, that that's fine. So uh, I'm glad to share it because it's very unusual and it's uh, something that really opens people's mind to the other side of the veil. When I was 16 years old, I was vacationing for the weekend with uh, another family and my family, and we were at a beach 
uh, just south of Aptos, south of Santa Cruz on the California coast. And it was spring break and the weather was a bit volatile and it turns out the ocean was also very volatile. And we were body surfing. I love to swim and I thought, oh, this is great. I've always wanted to swim, always do swim. I swim continuously now, several times a week. But in that case, I was being uh, a little too trusting or naive about the power of the ocean. And uh, so I was body surfing with my friends and this huge, huge wave just crashed over me and pulled me under. It was a horrific undertow. And it happened so fast, like I couldn't even stand up anymore. Suddenly my feet were just way off the bottom of the sand and I was pulled out to sea. I could not fight this current and it was very terrifying. I mean, I was screaming for help. My friends were on the beach. They were yelling. They were trying to get someone to help me. My parents came running and there I was just in the water swimming. And fortunately I could swim and I just kept paddling around that I couldn't get out of the undertow. And I, I think I was pulled out, I'm guessing maybe about a quarter of a mile. And the shore was really distant and it's small. And I, you know, like looking at the people on the shore, they're like little ants. And um, just when I was actually at my most desperate uh, uh, point of feeling, suddenly this wonderful halo of love just surrounded me and poured upon me. And I went into this other alternate dimension where I could see the faces and hear the voices of my ancestors all around me. It was like this family encircling me of who I was, who, who, who uh, I might be a part of, who existed before me. And they told me, part of it was in my mind, part of it I heard with my ears, Marcia, it's not your time to die yet. We're going to help you. Just relax and we'll keep you afloat until health or help arrives. So I did. I just kind of laid back and floated on my back and just felt this luscious warmth, supportive love. And it was kind of a pink white light all around me and the voices are there. The faces were there. And I didn't even have to swim. It was amazing. And before long, while I was basking in this halo of love, who should turn up but a surfer who arrived to help me on a surfboard. Uh -huh. <laughs> there he was, sent by God, had to have been. This guy was just surfing on a nearby beach and he heard all the commotion. I don't know, he might have been at the same beach, but he was a distance away from me. And he uh, pulled me onto his surfboard. And instead of going against the current, he went across the current and then circled around back to the beach. In the meantime, my dad had tried to go out and save me in an inner tube. And he also had gotten caught in the riptide. And a second surfer arrived and rescued him. <laughs> Oh my so, God. so we were saved. But this experience really opened 
my ability to see the other side of the veil called death. I got my glimpse of what is beyond the physical realm. And it was quite beautiful. And it opened my eyes to other experiences I've had in my life. When I was uh, a little older, like around 19, I had a very uh, high fever with close to 103, which is a very, you know, very high temperature for a human being to have. And I went into this trance. It was like a uh, yogic uh, kind of trance and uh, sat up in bed, didn't even know what was going on. And I just got swept back into the beingness of who I was before Marsha. And I actually counted that I went through 32 past lives. Oh, my God. <laughs> I can't remember all of them, but some of them I definitely do, the more prominent ones. So yeah, Tell us about the ones that stand out. <laughs> oh, I'm not, okay. I'll tell you as nicely as I can. I mean, the, the one that stands out, the one before me, was... Uh, I was a Jewish operetta singer who lived in Vienna. And I saw myself being on stage, doing productions. Uh, I, I believe I sang in the Viennese Operetta House, not the opera house, but the operetta. My voice, this life is kind of crossed between opera and operetta. I'm an opera singer now, by the way. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I sing in community opera theater called Verismo Opera. We're doing Louisa Miller, and I'm singing the contralto role of Federica. We open on November 4th. Oh, I love opera. I'm a huge fan. Oh, you are? Oh, oh I yeah. wish you could come. So, yeah, uh, yeah so I was a, a Jewish uh, operetta singer during World War II, and uh, I had all the glory of that life, except, unfortunately, um, I was sent off to Theresienstadt for a while as a performer, and then I got sick, and I was sent to Auschwitz, and that was it. End of oh, that, yeah. Marcia. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what I really remember. I also remember, uh, it, this is an interesting one, uh, Chinese life, where I was uh, sitting in the banks of the Yangtze River, casting yarrow sticks known as the I Ching and seeing the world of probabilities then and trying to figure out what was going to happen in the future for that life. And I see this man looking at me and that man saw me and there's this, still this connection. He could see who I was going to be and he probably could see me on this show with you, Whitley. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Bernie, how yes. do you react to this level of this? Because, you know, our overriding theme is a different kind of love uh, uh, that is actually a, a, a almost a power beneath physics. And when we are touching on things like near-death experience and survival of consciousness we are looking at something that has been built almost a world that has been built 
to nurture these fragments of consciousness that are us. And so where does that kind of love come from? The love that that is so powerful that it probably brought this about. Right. <clears throat> We've heard some going around in circles on this. Yeah. But I think a direct, a direct hit is warranted here. Um, I think that there is a, the question is, um, do you have free will? And what would be the purpose? What could be the purpose of, uh, of having being a creature that's in this universe with, with love as, as a basis? Um, the purpose of our existence here, I think, has to do with, uh, with God's creative ability. Um, God is, I think, looking for experience that uh, is gotten only through this, uh, this round. Is only through a, a, a deep use of an energy, which which he calls love. The same thing you're just talking about. So the reason that we're here is because God can't do everything as a God. I mean, think for example of God wanting to go skiing. Well, uh, could God go skiing? Well, the problem is that uh, you know his appearance and his uh, his uh, gear is all all wrong for going skiing. He can't do it. But can you go skiing on a mountain that had been created by him for the, uh, the ability to make physical things come, come to life? Sure. I think that's the whole point, that God wants to bring to life the creative things that he is capable of and has and created, created in, in the past. And he's searching for ways to experience that to make himself greater and grander and uh, more um, more loving, I suppose. So, so it's, it's yeah, hard. I want to explain that how God experiences skiing. You didn't quite complete that. So we are the eyes and ears of God. So God experiences skiing through Bernie, who loved used to love to ski. He did. I did. Yeah. yeah sure he, did. he God experienced skiing through Bernie and through me and through anyone else who skis. And so this is it's a, a very exhilarating experience. It's <laughs> a way of looking at things that you, you almost need to have. That um, you need some kind of a way for the existence of uh, things that God creates or could create as fundamental to the purpose of the of the entire universe. Why else would God do some of these crazy things that we experience? And that makes us the experiencer, which then gets passed back to God when we die. So yeah, we believe that God created the energy of of, of love, and He used this energy of love create the universe and it's not just a warm fuzzy feeling but it's a really powerful force you keep asking about love so i want to just uh talk a little more about it so yeah yeah, yeah. so there's yeah. an infinitely great power of love which makes things happen with a force greater than any we know of in physics so yes at some level the laws of physics are subordinate to the laws of love and this is consistent with the idea that creation and the universe itself are manifestations of consciousness. We propose that love enhances consciousness in a strong emotional expression. And that's what love is to we as human beings. It's a strong emotional expression, but it's more than just that. It's God's love for us. It's even stronger than our human level of love. I guess it's with, with a certain amount of love embodied in God. He can he can 
exercise the creative ability that he has and make things happen that they're not they're not real in the same sense as we consider particle physics being made of things that are real. The th thing that I uh, believe is that God is, um, well, uh, he has a disability and that this is the point of his bringing creatures to life in, in a universe. And because of his love and he could love us. He could love us. Yeah. And so this, this love is a very different kind of thing. I don't pretend to understand it. I mean, it's kind of taking me by surprise. I don't really understand it, but I've heard it said, and I, I believe that the looking on love as being a, a manifesting force that creates everything, including both the subatomic particles and, and the galaxies, uh, that this is a way that we can understand how God can be in this great infinite thing that fills the universe and where that leaves us. Here's this a very important role, by the way. If we are the things that God uses to experience himself oh that's gives us a heck of a lot of power i mean that's that's a that's no kidding god <laughs> no kidding creates this creates this in order to have experience and you know what's interesting about the whole arc of our discussion we started out uh talking about this kind of formless essence that was there uh, when we discuss the the ideas that come from the Kabbalah, and then it, it we it gradually forms into a, a, a sort of self awareness, and then begins to seek experience in the world to create a world to seek experience in. That's exactly like a a a birth. It's a birth, like a you know the 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 shadowy beginnings of awareness in the womb followed by an eventual explosive birth the big bang which the baby's in peaceful existence kind of explodes in his face and then uh the long journey of life and it, 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 i think the you, what you're saying here basically is the universe itself is now on in uh, that long journey in life and we are coming to the middle of life and it it haunt the the haunting words of the beginning of dante's inferno uh come to <laughs> mind uh he found himself in the forest the path was lost now that gets me where i'm going what about heaven and hell? And what about negative experience? Does God want that? Well, of course, I'm put in a position of speaking. In other words, was God with the SS who put you into Auschwitz? And well, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think Those the problem big. is that you can't you can't have anything anything that's really good without having something bad to, to offset that. Exactly. Um, so if you try to have a universe in which only good things happen, it would eventually become a very, very dull universe. You just can't do that unless you allow for the existence of negativity, which can sometimes be horrible, I suppose, and something you wouldn't expect God to do, but he keeps hands off. I think the free will, free will is the, the fundamental thing that uh, makes this whole system work.
Well, we need to kind of give a little definition of what heaven and hell is because we don't use the traditional Christian terminology for heaven and hell or the description uh, because we do believe that we have more than one life. Uh, heaven is really, to me, and you can add to this, Bernie, heaven is a place where we go between lives to be with God, to renew ourselves, to be with our spirit guides, to review our lives in the Hall of Akashic Records, see how we did. Not just up a bit. Yeah, not just as up a bit. And um, then we determine what it is we want to do our next life. And we have a lot of consultations with angelic beings, spiritual guides. And we choose what it is that we're going to experience in our next new life. And we make these decisions, but even when we are born into the physical world, we still have free will to change the course of our lives if we want to, but we do make plans. So heaven is, I think it's a really beautiful place to be and we get to share experiences with other angelic beings and other souls that are like us. But it's in the traditional Christian sense where God is a desert patriarch sitting on a throne with a staff and, you know, he's sitting on a bank of clouds and angels are floating around him playing harps. I mean, I think there are angelic voices and there's a lot of music on the other side, but it's not the way that I was taught when I was in Sunday school. Uh, but then with regards to hell, hell is claimed to be an everlasting realm of torment reserved for humans who have committed grievous offenses against God, often referred to as mortal sins, mainly by Catholics. By the way, Bernie trained to be a Catholic priest when he was younger, so he's really up on the Catholic concept of hell. I'm a a, uh, lapsed, fallen away, not quite fallen away, Catholic too. Well, there's a lot of really nice things in the Catholic Church, by the way. Exactly, I know. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking to Bernie Hayes and Marcia Sims, the miracle of our universe, and now it's just us, Bernie, okay. Marcia, and I, and me, and our subscribers. And I want to go down uh, this road, the God Road, a little bit farther. Because we have here a presence. And, you know, you speak of Catholicism. I'll tell a quick story. When I was a little boy, I became, I was, of course, in Catholic school. And I began to realize that the way the nuns were describing hell and heaven, heaven looked dull as dishwater and hell looked absolutely fascinating. If you didn't mind a little pain. <laughs> our archbishop was very strict and he taught that in our archdiocese if you ate meat on friday you were going to hell yes, so, you know this was this was not this was different in different archdioceses the archbishop had the say in his each archdiocese about things like that so i used to sneak out on fridays and play hooky uh, by convincing my mother I was sick, which she never really believed, but she'd been a hellish hellion herself when she was a kid, so she gave me some slack. Get on my bike when I got a chance to get out of the house without being seen. 
ride down to the end of the block where there was a hot dog stand yeah. and bite into a hot dog on Friday. <laughs> and and <laughs> the, the maw of hell opening up before my b below my feet and think, now if I die, between now and confession next tomorrow morning, we went to confession on Saturday morning. I'm eternally damned. And I, it made for some wonderful dreams at night, terrifying, waking up, sweating, and thinking, Am I dead? Has it happened? And then, of course, the anticlimax the bless me, Father, for I have sinned. I ate a hot dog yesterday. Um, Three Hail Marys, go in peace. <laughs> you know, yeah, and, that's it. Yeah. And what, what we're talking about here is I'm getting a little bit off the subject, and my, but my listeners are used to me, I hope. Um, is there an afterlife? And what is it like, not only for the good people, the people who have tried to do a good life, but for those like the SS guards? I mean, they're here too. <laughs> They're part of this too. And what happens when they look at themselves, guys? I mean, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, um, first of all, I, I want to say that Bernie and I believe that hell is impossible because any sins that we might commit here in this life are finite. But hell is claimed to be an infinite, everlasting realm of torment. So that doesn't make, logically, it doesn't make sense. Also, we're sparks of God. We believe that in our book. We are sparks of God, and we co-create reality along with God. So if God were to send us to hell, he'd be sending part of himself to hell. And that doesn't make any sense, really. Think about it. <laughs> Why would God want to punish himself? He certainly wouldn't want to, but um, people do have to reap what they sow, and that's the concept of karma. Negative karma can be translated as burden of sin. So people like Hitler, I mean, he's a huge example, but the SS guards who tormented me, yes, they have negative karma that they have to work off, and there's a lot of rehabilitation rehabilitation that would have to be done but it's probably not going to be in an eternal flaming hell because it wouldn't take eternity to wear uh work off all of your negative karma so uh we shouldn't be appalled that even given enough repentance from such a one as hitler or the ss guards who tormented me they could eventually achieve salvation and here's the question what is salvation in our terminology salvation means reuniting with god in the spiritual world makes a lot more sense to us you want to add to that bernie no i think they covered it pretty well it's so illogical to think yeah. that um god would, would make a hell uh, it makes no sense for the reasons marcia just gave and uh I, it's a bad concept yeah. And yet, as a little Catholic boy, it was one of the most enjoyable concepts in my life. Uh, um, yeah, I, I like your story about the hot dog because I have a chapter in the book about, about eating a hot dog on, on 
on a, a Friday at the house of my good friend, who, whose parents were sort of Catholics. And I was eating the hot dog, and oh, what am I doing? It's Friday. It's Friday. Oops. I gotta go find go to go to the nearest priest and and uh, get, get purged of this. So I know full well what you mean. You got purged on Saturday, right? Yeah. I, <laughs> I, of course, I, I had to live overnight. I mean, that was you know. Just like you. <laughs> you had to live overnight. Am I going to hell now? Probably could barely sleep. Oh, well, if, if you keep your eyes open, it would work out all right. Yeah. Sleep with your eyes open all yeah. night. <laughs> well, let's let's keep on with this these questions about God that appear in the book. Okay. Um, it, it, this is another one that absolutely fascinates me. I've been a student of the Hermetica for most of my adult life, and uh, the the exploration of the nature of God in the Hermetica is that folks that you don't know the Hermetica are. A, a, a group of basically of texts from the second, third, and fourth centuries AD that are sort of Christian and and and, and sort of not, and uh, that that are uh, uh, exploring the nature of deity and the experience of being essentially part of God ourselves, and mm -hmm. uh, that would be the best way. Now, in that time, there were many, many gods. And is there more than one god? We think we're so, we're absolutely fixed on the idea now, having lived in a monotheistic uh, world for thousands of years, that there could only be one god. What are your thoughts about that? I know, you, I know your thoughts about it, but I'm not going to tell, tell you. I want you to tell me. Well, at the, just as an example of a church that preaches this, uh, we sometimes go to a unity church, and uh, they, they say very, very definitively, there's only one, there's only one, uh, one God, the divine, omnipotent, God, yes. uh, uh, ever loving, everlasting, divine. You know, maybe we got it right. I don't know, but that's part of their their belief system. Well, the religions that uh, have more than one God. I mean, that doesn't actually contradict our beliefs that we express in the book, because I think it all depends on terminology, because we definitely be, believe in higher realms of angelic beings. And perhaps this is what those other religions were seeing, are experiencing. There is the experiencing uh angelic beings who had specialties in what they worked on here at our level of reality so i think it's really more terminology but we just believe there's one huge divine consciousness and everything else is a spark of that so uh you know our ancient people saw god as humanoid kind of experience uh expressions right like, you know, even uh, well, sent, yeah. yeah, Apollo, they, and yeah, they they uh, personified, yeah, they personified natural forces and called them gods, essentially. Yeah, and it's, 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 you can see that happening in very very early Egyptian religion, where they are they are beginning to discover these natural forces in such a way that they personify them so that they can honor them basically and 
and hopefully control their uh, activities, uh, such as, um, you know, they want, uh, or later, uh, an example is uh, the god goddess Demeter, uh, uh, the Greek goddess Demeter, who would uh, range the fields in the spring, bringing life up out of the dead land, out of the soil. And they thought of Demeter as a being, when actually what it was is simply a force of nature. Yeah. And it, they separated each force of nature out and called it a being, and that was a god. There you go. That's perfectly defined. Yeah. That's, that's what I was trying to say. <laughs> right, I know it. Uh, but, um, but so behind all of that, though, there is this other presence. And, uh, you know, we understand so much about physics. But there's one thing we don't understand. And I have friends who have been working on this for years mm -hmm. because they're aware of the fact that there's someone here who does understand it. And that's gravity. We can't manipulate it and we really don't understand it. Where does, is that a manifestation of God that perhaps is somewhere back deep behind 1137th, the mysterious fine structure constant? Well, uh, so interesting. You uh, mentioned gravity. I was just talking to Bernie about it last night. Because, you know, I have extrasensory perception due to my near-death experience. Sometimes I could see gravity, not just, you know, when I put something and it's not balanced correctly on a tabletop. And I could see that it's not just that it's just falling. I could see that there's a force that it's sucking it down onto the floor. I can experience that. Bernie said, wow, that's really crazy, but that's neat. <laughs> I'll give you a little, a little yeah. different perspective on it. Yeah, go for it. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, this goes back to the zero point field, actually. And uh, there, is a, there is a model. By a model, I mean the development of a, a theoretical equation and such that, that uh, describe the phenomenon. Um, the person who wrote this article, was Andrei Sakharov, a Russian, was a Russian dissident. And uh, the paper was quite interesting, especially because the person who picked up on it and did some more work in it and expanded out was Hal Putoff. Yeah, we mentioned earlier Hal right. Putoff. Yeah. So in this view, uh, there's a connection to something deep, and that is the way particles interact with each other as mediated by the zero-point field. And that's what was demonstrated by Sakharov and by Putoff. I certainly saw it in the left here now. There's, but it, it does have something to do with gravity, the zero point well, energy. Gravity. I'm saying this is the, the zero point energy, in this case, uh, modifies nature and its vicinity to give a gravitational effect. But the gravitational effect becomes really a subset of electromagnetism. So it's a little bit wonky for you guys here. But that's, no, that's, that's good. Should you, we restate that again? Because this is pretty profound, Bernie. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's very profound. Very. It's what I was experiencing. Um, so you, Bernie says that everything has a, an interaction with the zero-point field, and the zero-point field creates little subsets of gravity upon everything that it interacts with. And when we think the biggest subset that we experience is gravity on Earth, 
Well, in the sense so, of, yeah. of a certain point, you're, you're right. Your gravity is called, this, by the way, is called the polarizable vacuum model. Polarizable vacuum model. Because it's a way that, that uh, uh, electromagnetism can be treated in a way that creates a, a, a false gravitational field, which is really an electromagnetic one. And you can show that based on what the soccer often put off. So, <laughs> what have Hard you got one. going there? Yeah, oh. turning my cell phone off. Sorry. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Everybody beeps these days. It used yeah. to be if there yeah. was a beep like that, everyone stopped. Oh my God, we got to edit that out. But too many people beep. If you edited out all the beeps, you didn't have mm -hmm. any left. Yeah, now, the whole world's let's get, beeping let's get, at it. To, let's get back to gravity because I just have an instinct that we need to relate it to love somehow, to the love that we were talking about mm. that is the the binding force or, or the, the, the energizing force of the universe. Something fell in love. Something fell in love in a very strange way. I mean, strange to us because our love is very sexual and mm -hmm. personal or... Uh, altruistic or uh, uh, and it, it becomes quite pure when we have love for example an animal and because there's no sexuality between there's just the pure love of the enjoyment of each other's being but deeper than that there's love that in, out of which forces emerge simply because this love wants being to be and mm -hmm. isn't this love somehow connected to gravity? I, I don't know. I mean, there's a very shallow level of that that I was just talking about. I don't understand any more deeply than, than that, so I shouldn't be talking about it now. But I, I don't see any obvious um, connection between the, the, the phenomenon. Human magnetism of love you know, versus gravity. I don't know. You could wind up buried in, in words here. You know? Maybe there's another term that we should find somehow to, uh, to identify the need of God for the universe. Another term. <laughs> what would it be? Would it be, can we go back and explore the depths of logos that great word that we earlier yeah. discussed earlier yeah. because uh, folks if you don't know you i mean most people don't know anything about greek but greek was the most subtle language ever to be spoken in the western world and hmm. uh, we it, it, ancient egyptian may have been as subtle or more subtle but we don't know enough about it to tell yeah. but greek we do know and logos is an immensely resonant word it is the word that expresses the meaning of, of the creative force, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So here we are, struggling, <laughs> struggling. Expression of thought. Creative force. <laughs> uh, and I'm, we've ended up yeah. with questions like, how did, why did God create uni the universe? And then there comes finally to, well, okay. It's here. We're here. So what is the purpose of this? Why are we here? Well, the purpose of that, I think, is, is much easier to understand because um, you need to have free will, and free will can only be gotten uh, by 
um, having your previous details of your previous lives um, wiped wipe clean for the time being. For and some people. Well, no, <laughs> Not people. Yeah. Well, most people. Yeah, for yeah. most people, yeah. you know, and, and there's a complete uh, whitewash of the lives that they've had before because if they didn't have that as a, uh, they, had, they did have that, they did have um, memories of uh, Auschwitz or other things like that, that would interfere badly with the ability to use your present life to, to accomplish the things that you decided you would like to accomplish. Well, I have to say my memories of um, my death in Auschwitz actually uh, does give me empowerment in this life because it gives me strength to know that I was able to endure that and here I am again and I purged myself of a lot of negative karma, I'm sure. By doing that, it took sheer strength to go through it. But uh, I, I do think that remembering that is not bad. Mm -hmm. You know, I've learned a lot of things about Marcia this life because of that memory. But um, well, I wanted to just answer what we kind of think the purpose of life is. We think it's an excellent way to take what we are and to expand and improve ourselves. This involves evolution as our human species evolves also. So we're hopefully all of us are expanding and improving ourselves, not just on this life, but on the spiritual level or whatever it is we're going to do. And we hope that humanity will evolve in a much more positive direction. We need more people that are workers of light. We definitely do. And we need uh, all of us to be seeing life this way that we can grow and we can experience and we can learn and we can love love is the most important part which you keep talking about and we emphasize also <laughs> and here we are conscious beings and wondering what in the world that means in the world where we are creating in the process of creating machine intelligence that is going to mimic consciousness so perfectly that we won't be able to tell whether it's conscious or not. Hmm. Um, well, that's not the case. But... Well, I think it has to be yeah. because uh, we will be able to, in fact, uh, there are certain AIs now that mimic conscious, they, they, it can really do seem like conscious beings. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Microsoft's early one, uh, I say early, it was nine months ago. Uh, what was it called? That had got into a, fell in love with a reporter and tried to get him to divorce his wife. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Remember, it obviously I had to, they needed some tinkering there. But <laughs> the, the, the point is, what is conscious? I mean, if, if it is a simulation of consciousness so perfect that it's indistinguishable from consciousness, isn't it consciousness? Where's the line? Well, I, I think that uh, this coming over the, the, the river of forgetfulness, coming to new life with new memories, um, I think that happens with a very strong force behind it so that you can't just say, well, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do it, do it my way. Um, and I don't think that creating something that is a 
an android or a human being will automatically generate some spirit to enter that android and say, ah, oh, I've discovered a place where I could live a life. Here, I'll, I'll, I'll put myself into this android and, and get on with my life. So, right. so you think we could become androids if we chose no, in a future well, life? No, I was operating, asking a question in the opposite direction. I, oh. I always thought that you can't just... You can't just make something as a perfect Android or robot or whatever and say, okay, you know, it's open now and it's open to any all comers. All the all comers want to have the experience. Um, it's possible that you know, I'm wrong on this. Well, I probably am. I'm babbling. I, I, I don't know. That's, you, that's a really difficult question to answer, by the way. Yeah, no, it's true, but I'm still, I'm, I'm with a couple of people. The miracle of our universe is your book is a damn good try with all of these questions. You, you, you uh, address them in a straightforward way that really gets the reader thinking. And, um, I think it's uh, it's wonderful in that respect. I really gained from reading it. It's very enriching. Oh, great. Um, Thank you. So Thank much. you. Yeah. So, uh, but you know, you 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 speak of the spirit and the soul. I have a mutual friend who I'm and a friend with. He was a friend of someone who runs one of the rovers on Mars. Hmm. I don't know this person. The person who runs the rover personally. But he says to me that she's convinced, or he's convinced, the one running the rover, that the this machine became ensouled at a certain point. That oh. there's it, it's it, there's a soul has entered it, and is now it is now a, a in effect a, it has a consciousness. Oh, wow. Do you know who it was and when, when this was written up? That's really I didn't hear. I'm sorry. Oh, who is this? And is this written up somewhere? I'd love to read it. No, it was, no, it's, it's this is a private. I, I can't hmm. say names because I'm not sure I should. Okay. I, I, you know, NASA being NASA, yeah, they could be upset about somebody saying something like that. Well, it's interesting because I just read an article, uh, I just a few days ago in the San Francisco Chronicle, that the rover on mars was supposed to die like seven years ago something like that and it's still running and they don't even know why yeah well that's <laughs> probably that's probably the rover we're talking about i think um, so. <laughs> so uh in any case we've had a we've had an absolutely marvelous conversation i think it's been just extraordinary and uh we have uh, you have the two of you are a wonderful team speaking of love and uh, i so enjoyed having you with me today the miracle of our universe a new view of consciousness god science and reality you know folks if you if you want to get you know it's, it's one thing to say oh the universe is a simulation it's another thing to really taste that as a genuine possibility and make it part of your own experience of being. And that's where this book takes you. The miracle of our universe is truly a miracle in itself. 
Marcia Sims and Bernie Hayes, how much I have enjoyed our time together. Oh, thank you. Same here. Same thank here. you so much for being with us on Dreamland. Oh, you're welcome. It's really a lot of fun. Yep. Do it again. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander. <laughs>